The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth these words. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Plato, that philosopher of many centuries ago, declared, The life which is unexamined is not worth living. I pray you will look into the mirror of life and that you will see yourself in relationship to God. The passage in Corinthians takes us beyond the surface and focuses upon the real you. In this passage, the Apostle Paul seeks to end his defense for his apostleship. In his summary argument, he states, the fruit and the effectiveness of his ministry is the evidence that his apostleship is genuine. He said, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and of appreciation, signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul shames them for their lack of appreciation and recognition of who he is. A danger in the Christian life is getting so accustomed to our blessings and taking them for granted from those who minister to us. In his closing argument, there are two statements that I would have you to focus on with me. Verse 14, I do not seek what is yours, but you. And then in verse 21, I mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul lists the sins that was among that church congregation. In these two statements, we find what God wants most in your life and in mine. Number one, I do not seek what is yours, but you is God's claim. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and God says it today to us. I don't want what you have. I want you. What's the meaning of that statement? The Living Bible correctly states it. I don't want your money. I want you. What God wants most is our hearts, not the money we give nor the work we do or the attendance we have. It's obvious that when we have truly given ourselves, he will have our money, our talent, and our time and participation in the church. Oh God, all that I know of myself 
I give to all that I know of you, prayed a Christian one day. Say with the poet, enter my life more fully, take now complete control. True, thou hast been my savior. Thou shalt be Lord of all. The measure of how much one has truly given himself to the Lord can be found, first of all, in his affections and also in God's will, the goal for our lives. The late Dr. Bill Bright, who headed Campus Crusade, made the unforgettable statement, I try to prioritize everything I do in the light of the Great Commission. Yes, our love, our life goals, our priorities are the measure of how much we have given ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Can you say with David Livingston, I will place no value on anything I possess save in its relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the kingdom of God, it shall be given away, not kept. Only as by giving of it or the keeping of it, I shall promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes, time, and eternity. How long will it take us to learn that which God wants is not church habit, giving our money, or even Christian service, but he wants us, our hearts, our love, our obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, there is the story of King Saul's victory over the Amalekites. God told them to utterly destroy everything. As Samuel approaches Saul, he is busily engaged with the people in making sacrifices to the Lord. But God was not pleased because he had not obeyed. Samuel said to him, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in the obeying of the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Yes, obedience, giving yourself, is more important than acts of church worship. The Lord says to you and me today, I seek not yours, but you. The test of our response is that we have come to the place in our lives that we say to Jesus, I seek not yours, but you. The indication of real love, not that we seek the gifts and blessings of God, but God himself. The second goal 
is that God wants not only you, but also a clean and acceptable life. The Bible word is holy. Reginald White, in his book, The Upward Calling, writes, The modern mind, holiness is in itself an unattractive term, old-fashioned, otherworldly, suggesting the style of a monastic life. Yet its meaning is positive, rich, and immensely practical. True faith can be no more penetrating without holiness than fire without heat. For holiness is essentially a blazing devotion to God and to all things godly. That at once consumes whatever is unworthy, fires the soul with joyous zest, and shines by its own radiance. The negative implications, denial of the flesh, abstaining from evil of the world, are secondary, almost incidental consequences. The innermost meaning is concentration upon God, willingly, lovingly, enthusiastically. As Augustine would say, it means to love God passionately and completely, and then do what you will. Paul planned to make a third visit to Corinth. It was his desire for this to be a pleasant visit. He had warned them about deeply entrenched sins in their lives, and yet they still had not repented. In order for this to be an authority and straight and straighten things out, which would make it very unpleasant, he loved them too much to ignore their waywardness and continual sin. Some time ago, George Gallup Jr. charted confusing and conflicting trends. He revealed that there is the contradiction of a current upsurge in America's religious interests and church attendance, but also an increase in the immoral behavior. He stated that 80% of Americans consider themselves Christians, yet only about half of the self-designated believers could identify the person delivered in the bulletin sermon on the mount. And fewer still could recall as many as five of the Ten Commandments. He declared, but we find that there is very little difference in the ethical behavior between church members, church goers, and those who are not active in religious matters. Before his death, Reinhold Niebuhr stated that the most tragic symptom in the breakdown of our society is the complacent conscience of modern man 
in an age of social decay. In verses 20 through 21, Paul catalogs sins of disposition and conduct that he warns these Corinthians to deal with. These are sins of the spirit, disposition or attitude, quarreling or debates, selfish and self-centered ambitions that involved backbiting and whispering or gossip. All this was born out of pride and an exaggerated sense of the importance and the consequence of unruly church life. These sins were a precise indictment that there was a lack of love among the Corinthian believers. And then he mentions sins of the flesh. The gross sins of the flesh are fornication and lasciviousness. Paul had dealt with these sins in 1 Corinthians, but some had persisted in this moral uncleanness and were unfit to enter the presence of God. The word lasciviousness speaks of their lives being soul from wallowing in worldly and immoral quagmire. The moral climate of our society is worsening. One of the latest new soap operas, Forbidden Passions, is a candid look at gay life and will show men in bed together embracing. It is the plan of those who produce this to move the broad-based cable TV and then the big three networks. Are these sins of the spirit and sins of the flesh deeply entrenched and a part of your life and the lives of other believers, I remind you that God says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 30, God wants you, but he wants a clean heart. Paul says he would be humbled and grieved, but the word means to grieve over the sin. Yes, we need to become brokenhearted over the sins in our lives and society. This week, I read a sermon entitled, When Life is So Good That You Forget God. And it was a development of David's success as king that caused him to drift into sin with Bathsheba. Would you look at your life? Has success led to excesses? It is difficult to live on easy street because it makes you forget God who gave you what you enjoy. You see, it is the little foxes that spoil the grapes. In his book, See You at the Top, Zig Ziglar tells the story of a giant sequoia tree 
It illustrates the cancerous effects of sin left on an unchecked life. He tells of this great tree that was growing when Christ walked on the shores of Galilee and how it had reached maturity when Columbus discovered America and how through the Civil War it withstood the ravages of fires and storms and floods. It seemed destined to live and to lay the egg that would produce other. But beetles came and laid their eggs. The beetles multiplied into hundreds and thousands and millions. They first attacked the bark. Then they worked deeper into the life of the trunk. And finally, they were eating at the very heart and strength of this magnificent forest giant. Then one day, the lightning flashed. The giant sequoia fell. It was not because of the elements, but it fell because of the weakening effects of those tiny beetles taking its life. Little sins do the same to people. They slowly take the toll until the day comes when a man like the tree falls. I ask, dear friend, is your heart enthroned him? There let him subdue all that is not holy and all that is not true. I pray today that you will take a sincere, serious look into your life, your affections, your actions, and see if you measure up to what Christ would have you to be and to do. And if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus, as your personal Savior, right now, bow your head and heart before God and say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I turn from my sin and I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I pray that you'll make that decision and that you will find a good Bible church and become a part of it and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will take the word of God with the spirit of God and bring about changes and fruit in the lives of those who have listened. Help us this day to be sincere in our relationship with you and to face up with all of the sin and wrongs that may be in our lives. Praise the Lord Jesus today, my friend. Praise him for who he is and what he has done for you. Amen.